Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for this time we can worship, this time that we can praise you, and Lord, this time that we can hear you. God, thank you so much that your word is powerful, and we just pray and ask that our hearts would be more open, Lord, to what your spirit truly wants to say. God, we just pray for willing hearts, receptive hearts, to trust, to believe, and to act upon those things. Father, thank you so much for hearing um, our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, it's very interesting. Um, you know, I texted everybody this morning. I was like, hey, everybody, I need a lot of prayer. And they said, why? You know, I've been doing this evangelist series, evangelistic series all week. You'll kind of notice it, the effects of it by my slurred speech. But I've been doing the evangelistic series all week, and different things are taking place. I really appreciate the pastoral crew, uh, the whole Patterson Church. I mean, everybody who's in Patterson is actually part of this series. And I appreciate all the series church members that have been coming out and supporting and taking up various roles. God is good. Amen? But last night after the meeting, I mean, it was amazing. God really blessed. Like Lisa said, we actually had more people show up last night than even our first night. Normally when you do an evangelistic series, you have the first two nights be the top nights. But yesterday was our top night. And we covered the state of the dead. In other words, what happens to people when, uh, when we die? And what is so remarkable is that people who saw the flyer waited until this particular night to show up. Which just tells you something. That this is a very much a present truth. That people want to understand this issue. In fact, there was a, a, a son and his mom that were there. And after the meeting, I mean, they showed up first time yesterday. And they, they shared with me that um, the son's fiance killed herself one week ago. I mean, people are broken. And people want answers. And people are trying to understand the things of the world. But ladies and gentlemen, we have the truths in God's word. Amen? And God wants us to share these beautiful truths. Well, last night I got home. I couldn't go to sleep till about 12.30, okay? Then I woke up at 4 o'clock. And, you know, I said my prayers. And then I went back to sleep. And every time I go back to sleep the second time, when I wake up that second time, I feel like a freight train hit me. Anybody else experienced that before? Okay, I mean, you feel like you just got run over by a locomotive. And I woke up and it was around 8.30 and I was like... Oh, just groaning my way out of bed. And I was praying, claiming promises. They, they that wait upon the Lord, right, shall renew their strength, right? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And then I was also thinking about this jingle. You know, I shared this with Patterson uh, uh, about a, a month ago. You know, there's this jingle they used to um, uh, play on the TV. And let me see if you remember it. The best part of waking up. You guys know that too well. All right, let's sing it. The best part of waking up. Stop right there. Hold on now. Let's stop right there. So I was thinking this morning, I was like, I don't drink caffeine. I don't drink coffee, but this tune's in my mind. And just a few, uh, it was about a month ago, a month and a half ago, I changed the tune that morning. And so this morning, I was playing that tune in my mind with the new lyrics. And it goes like this. The best part of waking up is when Jesus fills your cup. Amen? All right, let's sing it. Here we go. (laughs) Here we go, okay? The best part of waking up is when Jesus... 
Oh, let's try that one more time. Let's try that one more time. Here we go. The best part of waking up is when Jesus... Amen. You got it. That's right. Every morning you wake up. You don't need to go to the coffee maker. You can say, Jesus, fill my cup. Amen. Amen. All right. What we're going to be learning about today is something very powerful, something God has really been leading me on. And it's not an exhaustive study, but this is something that at least is going to get us curious and more thoughtful and mindful of these things. And we want to continue to study these things out. Can you say amen to that? Right? And so I want to share some of these thoughts. Everybody take your Bible. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. You know what's very interesting when you read the book of Genesis? Um, This is what most people will encounter as the very first thing they ever read in Scripture. So in other words, the majority of people that have read the Bible, many times they'll turn to Genesis chapter 1, and they'll take a good look at that very first memorable verse. Well, what is that memorable verse? Look what the Bible says in Genesis 1, verse 1. Ready for this? In, let's say it together, in the beginning, God. Stop right there. Wow, isn't that amazing right there? Just think about it. The first words that people will read. In other words, one, one of the first legitimate encounters with the presence of God. They'll open up the Bible to Genesis 1, verse 1. They'll start from the beginning. And the first things they'll read is, in the beginning, God. Let's continue. In the beginning, God, what? Created the heavens and what? Earth. Imagine this. Their first introduction of God is... The creator. The beautiful creator. Let's continue with this. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. In other words, there was just this water that covered the earth. And notice what the Bible says next. And the Spirit of God, what? Hovered over the face of the what? Over the face of the what? You know what's so interesting, ladies and gentlemen? One day I was walking by this beautiful, uh, just this beautiful lake. And the sun was out there. And it was just one of those nice, beautiful lakes into deep into Yosemite. And so I walked near this lake and I stopped. And I got to the edge of the lake. And I stood over and I looked at the water. And I saw my reflection. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to think about this. As one Bible student once said that perhaps what God was doing when he was hovering over the face of the water is that he was looking upon his image upon the earth. In fact, when you read the very end of Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says something very remarkable. What does it say? And God, what? Created man in his own, what? Image. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he what? Created them. What is so beautiful about this very first chapter, you see this climax happening where God is looking upon this world and His intent is to stamp His image upon this beautiful planet. And the Bible says something so remarkable in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, And God created man in His own image, in the image of God He created them, male and female, He what? 
created them. In Genesis chapter 1, you find this almost um, abridged version of creation at the end. And what you find in Genesis chapter 2 is more of a narrowing down of that part of creation that was most special to God, and that was the creation of man. In fact, take your Bible, let's go to Genesis chapter 2. I want you to see something. Genesis chapter 2, very next chapter, it's, it's easy to find. It's after chapter 1, okay? Now take your Bible, go to verse 7. Look at verse 7, Genesis 2, verse 7. Notice what the Bible says right here. And the Lord God formed man, notice this, from the what? Dust of the ground, notice this, and breathed into his nostrils the what? Breath of life. Do you want to know what's something that's so amazing about this, okay? Think about this. The first air that entered into Adam's body, that went through his lungs, that was inside of him, the first breath he was like, <gasps> was God's breath. I mean, just think about how beautiful that is when you begin to think the very first breath, the very first air that Adam breathed wasn't the air of Eden. It was the breath of God that was inside of him. And you begin to think that is so amazing. The creator of the universe, the one that has created numberless worlds. Here he is. He's breathing his own essence into Adam. And notice what the Bible says next. Go to Genesis chapter 2. Go to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the what? Garden of Eden. Notice what the Bible says next. To tend it and to what? Keep it. Notice what happens. Then, and the Lord commanded, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely what? Eat. But then notice what he says right here. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall what? Die. Now I want you to pay attention to this, okay? We're going to build up to something. We're going to be a little bit more theological here, okay? You look at all the commandments that has positive in it, okay? That God gave to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply. That was a commandment with a positive, where Adam already had probably inclinations for these kinds of things, right? How about for him to tend the garden? It was probably already in Adam's heart to want a home, an environment of his own. How about to eat of the trees? This was something that was already present in Adam, to hunger. But ladies and gentlemen, God adds one commandment in the Garden of Eden that actually has a negative to it, which was what? Don't eat of this tree. Now what is so remarkable about this situation is that God then tells Adam, the tree you're not supposed to be eating of, it's going to be in the middle of the garden. Okay, keep tracking with me. It's going to be in the what? Middle of the garden. The Bible says it was in the midst of the garden. You know, what's very interesting. There was this atheistic cartoon that was talking about making a a parody of creation. And it was saying, yeah, if God really didn't want mankind to fall, they would have taken, or he would have taken that tree of knowledge and evil, and he would have placed it on an island that Adam could never get to. But you see, this is where the problem is. If God place that tree in some other place other than the center of the garden, it would, the very purpose of its existence would be defeated. 
Now the question is, wait a minute, you would say to yourself, I know the purpose of the tree of knowledge and evil. It's simply to show that Adam always had a choice. But I want you to pay attention to this a little bit more. Let's just imagine this is the tree of knowledge and evil right there. Okay? Where is it in the garden? It's in the midst of the garden, okay? So here's Adam, here's Eve, they're just like talking over here, talking about the zebras or whatever, and they take a glance, and do you know what they're always going to see within the eye shot? They're going to see the tree of knowledge and evil. So think about this, here they are one day, they're over here, they're just like talking with one of the angels, right? And there, Adam, from the, his, his, the corner of his eye, do you know what he sees over there? The tree he's not supposed to eat of. So here Adam is with Eve one day, they're walking with a giant pet lion, you know, looking at some birds or whatever, and they look, and the, one of the birds flies over there, and they look, and there, in the middle of the garden, is so what? The tree of knowledge and evil. Now what you're going to tell me is the very purpose of the tree of knowledge and evil to be present in the midst of the garden was the purpose for testing Adam and Eve. Yes, I believe that's true, but there's another purpose as well that I think we need to understand. You know what's very interesting is that Governments or states that set up, uh, you know what a state is, state is a government, a, na- a nation is a group of people that are connected by um, race or some other kind of uh, identity, right? That would say that's a nation right there and a state is a, a government, right? But what's interesting is that many states do not just have geographic sovereignty, their sovereignty extends to something else. The air. In other words, the air over that land is considered part of that property and they actually have a phrase for that air. Do you know what that's called? It's called the no-fly zone. Do you know what a no-fly zone is? Yeah, you can fly there. It's pretty simple, right? There's a no-fly zone there, right? In other words, people that are not part of that nation or that state are not allowed to fly there without permission. In doing so, they would violate the sovereignty of that state or nation. Does that make sense so far, ladies and gentlemen? Okay, now just think about this. Let's just say a plane from India, okay? A plane from India. Let's just say it's a military jet from India. We'll call it the... uh, uh, <laughs> I can't think of a name right now. <laughs> okay, let's just... Uh, Air New Delhi, okay? It's the name of their fighter jet, Air New Delhi. Oh, that doesn't sound very intense, okay? Um, let's call it the Air Tiger, okay? The Air Tiger is flying over, and they said, hey, let's fly over America one day. We didn't get permission. We're not going to cause any kind of military problems. We're just going to fly over America. Do you know what would immediately take place as soon as that jet flew into the no-fly zone of America? Immediately, we'd send out F-16s to go escort them out. Right? I want you to think about this, okay? Even though there was no kind of military conflict, right? Any kind of violation of that airspace would mean a violation of what? Sovereignty. Does that make sense, yes or no? The rule of that state. Now, what you find with the tree of knowledge and evil, it wasn't merely a test. It was placed in the middle of the garden because what it was supposed to always represent to Adam and Eve was this belongs to the Creator. This belongs to the Creator. 
That even though Adam had full rights to enjoy all the things of the garden and all the beautiful things of the world, right there, planted right in the middle of the garden, in the middle of the garden, would always be a reminder to Adam and Eve that this property belongs to who? The Creator. It belongs to God. And so this would always be present within Aishar and just a, a distance from Adam where he would always see... That's God's property. This belongs to the Lord. You know what's very interesting about this? Is that when the devil thought to seduce Eve, to tempt Eve, did he go after the commandment that says, be fruitful and multiply, yes or no? Yes or no? Did he go after the commandment that says, tend the garden, yes or no? No, he never went after any of the commandments that actually had a positive to it. He went after only one kind of commandment, which was that commandment. It is the commandment that had a negative introduced into it. Now, the question I'm going to ask you right now, I want a little bit of uh, participation here. Why does the devil go after commandments that tend to have a negative aspect to them? I don't mean negative by the very fact that they're a commandment that's negative, but they actually have a no there. Thou shall not. Why does the devil hone in on those kinds of commandments? Okay, just raise your hand. Yes. Doubt? Okay, anybody else? They're the easiest to break. Anybody else? It takes advantage. He wants to take advantage of our weakness. Okay, yes. He wants to constantly go against God. Anybody else? Yes. Confuse you? Okay, anybody else? Harlan? Grass is greener on the other side, right? Yes. Let me ask you a question. What makes a commandment with a positive in it different from a commandment with a negative into it? We like the guam, but here's the thing. God was giving this to Adam in a perfect world where he already had a perfect nature and no inclination to do wrong. So my question is, what is the difference between a commandment that has a positive in it and a commandment that has a negative into it? A thou shall versus a thou shall not in a perfect world where there's no sin. David, you're hitting it almost. You're, you're almost on it. Anybody else? Huh? He says there's an unknown feature to this. Anybody else? Yes, Isaiah. To surprise you? Okay, very good. Anybody else? Curiosity, okay. Yes. Huh? Okay. You ready for this? When you... Okay, Barb, get you the last one. Okay, very good. That's very good. And you guys have all tapped on this, but I want you to understand something right here. Okay? This is very important. I don't want you to miss this point. It is the commandment that requires more faith than the other commandments. You're saying, what? Let me ask you a question. How was Adam to know that the blessing of wanting to be fruitful and multiply, that God gave him that command, be fruitful and multiply, was actually a good thing? Because he did it and he saw the results of it, right? How about Adam, when he was tending the garden under the command of God, how did he know from God this was a good thing? Because he did it and saw it was a good thing, right? How about when God told him, eat of every fruit of this, even of all the other trees, and you can have all these other trees, and how would Adam know that that commandment was a good thing? What would he do? He would eat of it and say, yep, God is right. But guess what? When God said, don't touch this tree right here, Adam was left with an experience of faith.
Adam was left with an experience of faith. In other words, he actually had to experience something that he had no knowledge about, that is something that he didn't know by experience, and he would have to accept solely based upon what? God's Word. You know what's so interesting when you think about love, for example, and how the commandments relate to love, right? You would think about the Ten Commandments and you would say, well, I can clearly identify how this commandment relates to this part of a relationship with God or that commandment relates to this part of a relationship with God. But if you were to simplify that and ask, how do the commandments that have a thou shall and thou shall not, how do those two categories relate to what love is? It will lead you down an astounding study. But there's something else I want you to pay attention to. Again, we're building to something. So hang on to your seats, all right? Or your pews. Or your spouse. Your Adams or your Eves. <laughs> okay, I'm stopped right there, okay? But notice this. This tree was in the midst of the garden. It was always present to Adam and Eve. Okay? What is also very interesting about this tree of knowledge and good and evil is this. That the fruit didn't have any kind of unusual propensities to it. It was probably a fruit like all the other fruits. But the very command itself is what set up the dynamic of what was sin and what was not. Okay? So in understanding this, we're still building to a point. Just hang on, okay? So here Adam is. Created an image of God. God's breath is present in him. He's worshipping the Lord. And he keeps noticing this tree that's always present. That's always to him a reminder of God's sovereignty. That's a no-fly zone right over there. This is God's property right over here. I always have to recognize this. Because he ultimately is the creator. And I am a creation. Right? But here's the thing I also want you to recognize. When the devil tempted Eve to sin, right? Did that sin only affect her? Or did it affect her and Adam and the Lord? In other words, that sin was not something that was purely isolated to her. The effect of that sin actually led to a problem, not only with her, but also to Adam. And not only to that, God was, would be bruised in the process. And this is very important to understand about this particular commandment. That this commandment, that the effect of violating it, would actually lead to a transgression, not only against that person, or not the individual committing the sin, but also to the people around them, and not only to them, but the environment around them as well. Now, what is the whole purpose of this, ladies and gentlemen? Because now we're going to start driving home the point. Everybody take your Bible, let's go to the book of Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments, but I want you to specifically hone in on verse 8. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. Amen. Exodus 20, verse 8. Notice what the Bible is saying right here. It's very remarkable. Verse 8. Here we go. Remember the what? The Sabbath day to what? Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But what? But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Notice what he says next. In it you shall do no work. You know you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your what? Cattle, nor your 
stranger who's within your gates. But notice what the Bible says in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the what? The seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and what? Ladies and gentlemen, this is something so interesting. What you are actually looking at is a very unusual parallel between the um, tree of knowledge and good and evil and the fourth commandment. What you find in the midst of the garden was a commandment that God gave. What you find in the midst of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, was a commandment that God gave. What you find in the midst of the garden was a commandment where God says, you can enjoy all the other trees, but don't touch this one tree. And what you find in the fourth commandment where God says, do all your work the six days, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Don't touch that day. Now, this is where it starts getting even more interesting. This day says something uniquely about God. Now, you're going to tell me what those things are. I want you to tell me, what does the Sabbath communicate to us about God? Creator. All right. Anybody else? Not all the hands at once. If you have an answer, keep your hands down. Yes. 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 Jen. Fellowship, very good. What else does the Sabbath commandment communicate about God? Yes, over there in the corner. Recreation, beautiful. Anybody else? Sovereignty, very good, yes. Holy. Okay, now you guys all said good things, okay? Now I want you to read the commandment again, okay? And I want you to notice something. Clearly we will say to each other, yes, it's about creatorship, it's about fellowship. But I want you to pay attention to this. Go back to the fourth commandment, verse 8. Remember what I said to you? We're going to be a little bit more theological here. Verse 8. Remember the what? The Sabbath day to keep it what? Holy six days you shall labor and do all your work. This is all positive. But then he adds a negative to it. But the seventh day is the what? Sabbath of the Lord your God. Notice what he says. In it you shall do no work, you nor your what? Son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your what? Cattle, nor your stranger who's within your gates. I'm going to ask you a question right now, and here's the question. Do animals keep the Sabbath day? Yes or no? There's a bird in South America. Do animals keep the Sabbath day? I mean, do animals actually say, Oh man, it's time for Friday sundown. Let's come together. Let's bake some warm bread and light some candles around the nest, right? Is that what they do Friday night? Do the birds all flock to church Sabbath, Sabbath morning? Yes or no? How about your cattle? Anybody here owns any cattle? I thought this was the farming capital of the world. Maybe almonds. Do we have any cattle that's pulling almond carts? Anybody, right? Okay, does anybody own any sheep? Nobody owns any sheep? Okay, does anybody own a chihuahua? All your hands probably go up, right? <laughs> or a pit bull, all your hands go up. Right? That's Modesto, right? Pit bull or chihuahua, right? Here's the thing I want you to recognize, ladies and gentlemen. Your animal does not keep the Sabbath. Let's just be very honest about that. I mean, except maybe that bird. I don't know anything about that bird, but right? But animals generally don't reverence the Sabbath. Now, here's the question I want to ask you. How does somebody know an animal belongs to you? Specifically a domesticated animal. How do people know this cow or this sheep belong to you? It's your property. I don't understand you guys right now. Raise your hand. Yes? It listens to you like a dog. It listens to you like a dog. Anybody else? Yes. 
It's within your friends. Anybody else? Say it again. There may be a caller or a tag or identification mark. Yes. A brand, right? Yes. They're on your property. Yes. The branding, right? It's on your property. Guess what? Yes, over there. Okay, you ready for this? Here it is. The reason why people know it's your cattle is because anytime, anywhere, you can tell it what to do and it should obey you. Now, I want you to think about it. You're like, wait, what do you mean by that? I want you to think about someone who perhaps would be your servant. You would say, this person is your servant. People can recognize this person is your servant. How do people know this person is your servant? The same principle. By the very fact, they do what you want them to do, when you want them to do it, and whatever you want them to do. And notice what the Bible is saying right here. When the Bible is actually saying that God wants your animals not to work on the Sabbath day, when God is actually saying, I don't want your servants to work on the Sabbath day, do you know what He's communicating to you? He is communicating something interesting. What He is communicating to you is that you are not in control. God is actually communicating, you're not the one in charge here. Ladies and gentlemen, what the Sabbath commandment was meant to be, it was meant to be an interruption of our own control. Of our control of our property, of our control over people, our control over situations, our control over animals. When God said, keep the seventh day, what He was saying is, it's not your control, it's my control. Ladies and gentlemen, the way that the world recognizes whose you are. You know we're living in a world today of who you are. Who you are is what matters, right? But ladies and gentlemen, the Bible teaches it's whose you are. Amen? The Bible is teaching by you taking a seventh-day Sabbath. The Bible is actually emphasizing this powerful point that there is a Creator who is sovereign in your life. In fact, what is so remarkable, when you read the book of Acts, did you know two times in the book of Acts, when the disciples are praying, when the disciples are praying with power and asking for God to do great things, they actually appeal to the fourth commandment. They actually use the language found in the fourth commandment. You want to know why? Because the Sabbath was so integrated into the life of believers that they understood that this represented God's creatorship, God's sovereignty, God's authority. And so when they would be praying for God to do amazing things, they would turn to the commandment that would most clearly express that. The Bible is very frank on this issue about the seventh-day Sabbath. And do you know what else is so interesting? Had the law of God been kept like it should have, the law of God would have actually done away with systems that were designed to oppress humanity. It would have done away with ideas that degraded humanity. And had the Sabbath commandment been kept, it would have eventually did away with slavery altogether. Now you're saying, wait, how? Because what the fourth commandment would teach is that there is value upon your servant. And that would completely interrupt this idea of control. Complete control over the situation. Complete control over the people. In fact, when you read the book of Exodus, you know what's so remarkable in the book of Exodus? When God is 
you know, telling Pharaoh, let the people go that they may worship. You know what Pharaoh says? Pharaoh says, I will not let the people go into the desert to have a rest. Specifically, the Hebrew word is Sabbath. Do you want to know why? Because if the people kept the Sabbath, do you know what that would indicate and communicate to Pharaoh? He's not in control anymore of the situation. And he recognized this. In fact, the response was what? Persecution and oppression. Ladies and gentlemen, the reason why this is very, very important. Lately, I've just been really convicted on this issue. And I've been feeling the Lord say more and more. That our Sabbath keeping doesn't only affect us. It actually affects the people around us. That we actually, by our Sabbath keeping, place a value upon souls. And when I begin to realize this more and more from this study, I begin to recognize, man... My sins affect other people and they communicate the value I place upon people itself. This is why you see a very much a similarity between the Garden of Eden motif. And by the way, people look at these cartoonish pictures of the Garden of Eden and think to themselves, yeah, how could this ever be? But ladies and gentlemen, there are advanced principles, deep principles in the Garden of Eden. In fact, when you actually look at the Garden of Eden and you understand it's a microcosm of the very core of heaven's government itself. But unfortunately, we've been raised in such a way where we just see it as just, you know, like a snake with his eyes going up to the sides, like with a giant apple tempting a naked Eve or Adam, right? And so it's definitely been just um, really just diminished to a cartoonish picture. But when you actually study at the Garden of Eden, what you find is principles present in this structure that lay a foundation for a society's well-being. In fact, I was reading this book one day. It's called Planet in Distress. And it's very interesting. The author actually says that... What happens even after the fall of man? Do you know what God says? He cursed the ground for whose sake? For man's sake, right? In other words, man, to deal with the sin problem, would have to work hard and keep his mind busy, right? This author actually laid out how where we have gone to mass um, mechanized industrialization, mechanized farming, where we have gone into uh, mass production, that we've actually bypassed that curse that was for our own benefit, and by bypassing that system, it's actually led to even more adverse effects upon the hum- human society. In fact, the Spirit of Prophecy even talks about the Sabbath commandment, that had the Sabbath commandment been kept like it should have, there would not even be an atheist or an idolater today. Ladies and gentlemen, the law of God is like this well-regulated engine that is designed for optimal performance. Any kind of adjustments, any kind of tweaking, any kind of, you could even say, aftermarket part outside the efficiency of that system, introduced into that system, immediately leads to a breakdown of other systems. More and more in just understanding this issue of the Sabbath, the reason why it's very, very important is because we have taught our people the form of the Sabbath and have neglected the message of the Sabbath. And do you know what happens after a while when people just have the form of the Sabbath? It becomes nothing but a burden. And do you know what the next step is after that? Walk away from it altogether. What we need to teach people is the message of the Sabbath. Do you know, even Ellen White, she says something so beautiful about the Sabbath. You ready for this? It's going to blow your mind away. I mean, it's so powerful. Okay? It's shaking on my phone right now. Okay. This is what she says. I mean, this is amazing. Okay? Somebody actually sent this to me. Let me pull it out right now. Okay. 
These are the words. These are the words. Okay. Faith I live by page 36.3. On this day, the Sabbath day. More than any other, it's possible for us to live the life of Eden. I want to say that one more time. On this day, more than any other, it is possible for us to live the life of Eden. Ladies and gentlemen, God calls us back to the Garden of Eden. Do you know when he calls us back to the Garden of Eden? Every Sabbath. And do you know what you find in the Garden of Eden? You find a time where the artificial is done away with. You find a time where you are communing with the Creator. You're finding a time of genuine fellowship. You're finding a time where others aren't carrying our burdens. You're finding a time of restfulness. I want you to take your Bible. I'm going to show you one last thing. Take your Bible. Go to Revelation chapter 13. At the end of time. At the end of time. You see an assault upon this very idea. You would think to yourself, people, you know, sometimes when we're preaching evangelistic series, and by the way, I am 100%, you know, I, uh, I participate in this because I understand, you know, you take people where they're at. We'll tell people, yeah, at the end of time, it's about the Sabbath, it's about the Sabbath, it's about the Sabbath, and keeping the Sabbath, and there's some truth to that, but the truth is so simplified and kept there, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, yes, you're telling me the whole conflict of humanity at the end of time revolves around a 24-hour period? It's the essence of that 24-hour period. The form's important, just as important, but the essence. Take your Bible, go to Revelation chapter 13. Last book of the Bible. Last book of the Bible, if you're there, go ahead and say amen. Look at Revelation chapter 13. Go all the way to verse 13. 13 verse 13. This is talking about this end time power. This end time entity that sets itself up for this final conflict. Notice what the Bible says. He performs great signs so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Verse 14. He deceives those who dwell on earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Telling them who dwell on earth to make a... We've heard that language before. Keep going. An image... To the beast. This power sets up an image. Let's continue. He was granted power to give. What's the next thing? Breath. Wait, we've heard this before. Let's keep going. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast, notice this, should both speak and cause as many as who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Notice this. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And what you find set up, ladies and gentlemen, is a counterfeit time of worship. The same things that you saw in creation are actually counterfeited at the very end of time. An image was made. Breath was given to give in life to this image. And this thing of worship was set up. But I want you to notice how this entity, how this man-made entity goes about to enforce this. By complete and utter control. And that control is reinforced by economic sanctions followed up by A death decree. What's my whole point in this? What you are seeing at the end of time again is man's 
attempt to control the situation. What you are seeing at the end of time is man's attempt to try to fix the problem through his own ways. And ladies and gentlemen, what the Sabbath is ultimately teaching us is something so beautiful. It's teaching us that control is not in our hands, but the hand of God Almighty. You may be going through a situation today where you're wondering to yourself, man, I've been trying to fix this situation. I've been trying to control the situation. And it just seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. You ever had that experience before? Welcome to pastoring. Welcome to life. Ladies and gentlemen, you may be going through a situation today where you're wondering to yourself, man, I'm trying my best to try to just tweak, just trying to fix, tighten these nuts and bolts, and it just seems like the system of my life is breaking down more and more. Ladies and gentlemen, God is calling you back to the Creator. Back to the One who wants to interrupt your control of any situation. You may be going through a rough situation with a person, with a family, with finances with a job, with your education. And do you know what God is saying to you today? Give Him control. Let go and let God. Amen? The answer to control is surrender. And when we keep the seventh-day Sabbath in our life, not a burden to other people, but a day where we are back in the garden, even you know what you find? You find that you, by faith, are acknowledging there's somebody else who's in charge. There's somebody else who has sovereignty in your life. There's somebody else who is the creator, not you. And that's God Almighty. There are two things I want to challenge you on as we're closing with this appeal. Number one is this. If you have not been keeping the Sabbath like the Bible is teaching... If perhaps you've been keeping it in such a way where others are carrying your burdens on the seventh day. Or perhaps you're keeping the Sabbath in such a way where it doesn't feel restful. And it leaves you more tired and weary. Or perhaps you're doing things that should be reserved for the other days. My challenge for you today is give God control. Let God be God in your life. Let Him take this day and make it His own. Give it to God and you will show that the Creator is in charge of your life. And my second appeal has to do with this. If again, as I said before, if you're dealing with the situation and you're finding you don't have solutions, you don't have answers, you don't have power, Give God control. Surrender your will to His and say, Lord, be my God. Be sovereign in my life. At the end of time, the reason why the devil hates this concept of the seventh-day Sabbath is because it refutes his control over this world. That's my appeal to you. Why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer right now? In a moment of submission, a moment of peace and rest. Father in heaven, 
Thank you for being our God. Thank you for being our creator. Lord, forgive us where we have tried to fix the problems in our own life through our own strength. Forgive us, Lord, for the pride or unbelief in our heart that led us to do this. Dear Jesus, we want to acknowledge that you are sovereign, that you are the Lord. And God, we want to respect that. Dear Jesus, please, we surrender our lives to you, that you would take control and you would pick up the broken pieces of our lives. And second, God, I just want to pray for those that might have been struggling with the Sabbath or even the first time. God, put faithfulness in our heart. Help us to be men and women who the Bible says the law is in their hearts. Dear Jesus, do what you can only do. That is our prayer. May each person go out with just a peace and to trust that you have heard our prayers today. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.